is Jesus? That's probably a good question that every Christian should uh, have a decent response to. Who is Jesus? It's interesting, around the world, uh, wherever you go, you're gonna find that that's about the most divisive question you could possibly ask in a room. You bring the name of Jesus up, immediately, I mean, in most rooms that you go in, you're gonna be on some touchy ground. Uh, in some places around the world, you bring the name of Jesus up too directly, you're gonna be in a place where you could be harmed physically. You could have your life in danger because you're talking about Jesus in a particular way. In our context, that's not quite what's gonna happen to you, more than likely, but certainly, if you're like me, you have friends or family, perhaps, that, you know, when you bring Jesus up at Thanksgiving, uh, it's not smiled upon the way it is when you bring Jesus up here in this context. Maybe you've had some loved ones who you really care about who it's just tense. Fine talking about God, fine talking about spirituality, but don't get specific. Don't get targeted on Jesus because once you get targeted on Jesus, something about that man divides even family. Something about that man and, and who he claimed to be and, and what he's able to do. That person, Jesus, is so strong and powerful and so divisive and inflammatory even in our culture that it can, in fact, tear families apart. It, it can separate mothers from their sons. It can separate best friends who grew up together and, and now they, they barely speak to each other. Who is this Jesus that's so powerful to do that? Today, I wanna start by asking you, before we look to the outside world, what they say about who Jesus is, I wanna ask you very particularly two questions. Number one is, who do you say that Jesus is? Now, if you've been at this church for a while, I think you hopefully should have a decent answer to that. You should have a pretty good response about who Jesus is. You should be trained at this point on who Jesus is, on his nature, his ontology, if you will. But let me ask you another question. Who do others who are close to you, who look in on your life and have straight, direct lines of sight on your life, say that you say Jesus is? In other words, does your life, when others are rubbing up against your life and seeing your life, does it reveal what you say you believe? Are you walking in consistency with what you claim to say on a Sunday morning about who Jesus is? As we continue our study through the Gospel of Luke, we're going verse by verse through this wonderful book, and the Gospel of Luke is written by Luke, the beloved physician, was his nickname by the Apostle Paul. He was a doctor, and he wrote a history doing eyewitness interviews with people from around the land who had spoken with Jesus, been blessed by Jesus, been around during the, the formation of the early church, and he went in and performed these eyewitness interviews and then wrote this book down so that we could have confidence about who Jesus is. In our day and age, there's any number of questions. I love doing evangelism on the streets in Chicago. And the number of questions we have that are easily answered by a simple reading of the Gospel of Luke, who did the eyewitness interviews for us. Many misconceptions and lies that are floating around culture today. Just go to the source. He did the eyewitnesses for He interviewed the eyewitnesses for us. Now, the context today, if you recall, in chapter 3, Jesus preached his first sermon in which he told us that he had come to set the captives free, to proclaim good news to the poor. And in these next few chapters, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Everywhere he goes, he's bringing the kingdom of God with him. He's setting captives free. He's bringing good news to the poor. 
Last week, we saw that Jesus healed a leper. Now, today we come to the story of Jesus healing a paralytic. Just as much context going on as we saw last week. The thing about this story is, is when when the story begins, as you're going to see, the Pharisees and the religious teachers are sitting in the room of a house watching him with skeptical eyes. Keep in mind, at this point, Jesus had been going around the countryside performing miracles. The, the, the name of this man, Jesus, the power with which he was teaching and preaching, performing miracles, it, it was kind of spreading throughout the countryside. And we're told earlier on that many were coming from the surrounding towns to bring their sick to Jesus so he could heal them. Well, the religious leaders are getting wind of this, and you can kind of imagine those who are holding down the fort on religious uh, Hebrew traditions. Who is this upstart rabbi? They come to witness him. So they sit in this, in this room, And they're looking at him with skeptical eyes, watching what he does. And that's the scene as today's passage unfolds before us. So let me read to us, chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him, that's the paralytic, let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them. He picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Now the question that those Pharisees and the religious leaders ask right in the midst of this passage is they say, when Jesus, verse 22, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, No, I'm sorry, verse 21. The scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this? Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? What's the question they're asking? Who is Jesus? Who is this man? Today from this text, I want to draw out for you five answers to that question that we see right here in this text. Five answers that make it clear exactly who Jesus is. Number one. Jesus is the one to whom we must earnestly get our friends. Pretty simple. Let me, let me say it again. Jesus is the one to whom we must earnestly get our friends. Consider the story. This is a story of the relentless effort of four young men to get their buddy who was paralyzed. And we don't know whether he was paralyzed from birth or whether some accident happened to him that made him paralyzed. But it's a story of four young men who are desperate to get their paralyzed friend to Jesus because they heard that Jesus could heal him from his paralysis. Think of their story. 
They wake up early in the morning because they heard Jesus was around. Now, they don't have email. They don't have news. They, don't have, they, don't, they, might, they probably don't know the exact details of where Jesus is or what time he's going to be where he is, but they know Jesus is in the area. So they wake up early with a plan, and they put their friend on a, like a stretcher, if you will, and they carry him, and they begin to carry him. Now, remember, the roads aren't great back then. If you've ever carried a man on a stretcher, that's not super easy to do. It wobbles, Right? But they determined to carry him. They find where Jesus is, and when they get to the house where Jesus is, they try to get through the door. They're trying to push their way into this room, but the crowds are so surrounding the building that they can't get through the door. No one will let them in because everybody wants a first eye, first hand glimpse of Jesus. And so they look around, but they're determined in their heart I've got to get this man to Jesus. I've got to get my friend to Jesus. Now, in those days, houses were built. Because there was no air conditioning, and the coolest place to stay oftentimes would be on the roof, especially at night. And so often they'd have a staircase around the side, a narrow staircase that would lead up to the roof, to a flat roof. And so these men, they take this stretcher with this man on it upstairs. That's got to be difficult, right? Just think of their relentless pursuit to get this man up to the roof. They get up there, and it's, in those days, roofs were mostly thatched, but this was a tiled, not likely hardened clay tiles. They remove the tiles from the roof of a man they don't know. They lower their friend down right into the feet of Jesus. Now, what was driving them? All of this, because they had, they had an inkling that if anyone could save their friend, it was Jesus. They didn't know much, but they had heard that he could heal. And so they had to do whatever they could because they loved their friend. They were going to get him to Jesus. Now look, every single person in this room has friends and loved ones that are hurting. Every single person in this room. Now, some in this room are hurting deeply today. It's you. It's not necessarily your friends and your family that are hurting, but it's you. And, and this message is for you just as much as it's for you that have friends and family that are hurting. The message that these paralytics have to teach us is that there is a person who can heal, both spiritually and physically, if he so chooses to do, but there is a person that can so heal the wounded hearts of the people we love, so set their life correctly that their life would be transformed, and his name is Jesus. And the, the, the friends of the paralytics want to teach us this morning that we have to have a relentless pursuit with the people that God has placed in our life to get them to Jesus. A relentless pursuit to get them to Jesus. Now, how do we do that? Let me, let me end, let me, let's look at the text. Number one, sometimes, I want you to think about the person in your life who's, who's hurt right now, who's, who's just hurting, they're going through a lot. Sometimes it takes more than one person to get them to Christ. It took four men to carry the stretcher. Now, in your life, God's got you in your friends' lives. He's got you. Maybe you have non-believing friends and neighbors, non-believing family members. Maybe you have believing family members, but their faith is failing, and they're just struggling, and they're doubting. God's got you there. You're up. You are the person who's filled with the Holy Spirit in their life. God's orchestrated it so that you would be there, so that you'd sit through this sermon, so that you'd be equipped with the Word of God to step into their life. But often it won't just be you. Many of your stories, it wasn't just one person. There was, there was a handful of people that God primarily used, all with different giftings to speak into your life and shape you and bring you to Jesus. Sometimes you're one of a number of folks that have to work diligently in a person's life in order to get them to Christ. Number two, you gotta have a plan. These 
these, these four men, they had to wake up early. That's an assumption, but they had to wake up early. They had to, they had, it took time to get their friend together and to make the trek down to where Jesus was. If you wanna love your friends, you wanna love your family members to get them to Christ, it's not just gonna happen accidentally. You know, one of the things I oftentimes hear folks say is, I, when I do evangelism, I just do a re- relational evangelism. And what they mean by that is, I'm just in people's lives. Hallelujah, amen. We're the salt of the earth, Christians. You better be in people's lives just doing life with them. That is good and wonderful and right and true. But you know what happens? Sometimes that is really just an excuse to never bring up Jesus with a person, ever. It's just an excuse because you're just, what's happening is you're in people's lives and maybe you have a, a concept, I wanna bring Jesus up with them, but you're waiting for such a perfect time, such a perfect time that will never come. And years go by, decades go by. Jesus is never being brought up. The main thing in your life as a Christian is Christ. He's your joy, he's your satisfaction, he's the glory of your life. And the people that know you best, your friends and family who are hurting, you're not gonna bring them up with them. He's the thing that can heal them and you know it. Imagine having friends in your life that had a deadly disease and you had the cure in your pocket and never bringing it up. Never saying, look, I don't know if you want this, but I got, I got the cure. That would, that would actually reveal that you weren't being that good of a friend to them. Now, look, I've got family that doesn't know Jesus, and I know how difficult this is because I know how explosive Jesus can be. And I, but what I know is this. These men, these men had a plan to get their friend to Jesus. Their friend wasn't a project. They loved their friend. They were willing to look like a fool to get their friend to Jesus. Now that brings me to the third point. Be willing to break every convention that has ever been written about how you're supposed to get your, friend, your friends to Jesus. All right? Number one, what was the first one? It's gonna take more than one person very often. Number two, you gotta have a plan. And number three, be willing to break every convention. You can't get through the front door, go up on the guy's roof. If it's not someone you know, take the tiles off their roof, all right? Do what you have to do. Why did they have such a determination? Because they knew there was only one man alive who could heal their friend. There's only one. There's not many routes. There's many routes to hell, but there's only one to heaven. And it's through Jesus. And if we love our friends, if we love our family, if we love our city and our neighbors and our neighborhoods, we're going to find a way. We're gonna have a gospel creativity about us that's gonna figure a way out to get them to Jesus. I love how Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, if we wanna have souls saved, we must not be too squeamish and delicate about conventionalities, rules, and proprieties. For the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence. We must make up our minds to this. Smash or crash, everything shall go to pieces which stands between the soul and its God. It matters not what tiles are to be taken off, what plaster is to be digged up, or what boards are to be torn away, or what labor or trouble or expense we may be at. The soul is too precious for us to stand upon nice questions. If by any means we may save some, is our policy skin for skin, yea, all that we have is nothing compared to a man's soul. We we love to try to play it as safe as we can with our Christian faith. And if if we study the story of the four friends bringing their paralytic friend through the roof to get to the feet of Jesus, 
And we don't walk away from this room saying, I've gotta have some gospel creativity, some Holy Spirit entrepreneurship. When I get my friends to Jesus, then we've missed the passage. We've missed it entirely. Does this describe your faith? Does it describe historically the way you have labored to get your friends to Christ? Cover this in prayer. Don't just barge forward. Cover it with prayer. Pray for Holy Spirit opportunities. Be in their life, but have, have a creativity about your, your efforts. Have a willingness to break every convention. Who is this man? He's the one to whom we must earnestly get our friends. Number two, who is this man? Jesus is Daniel's son of man. He's Daniel's son of man. Look at me with me at verse 24. Chapter five, verse 24. Jesus is now speaking with the Pharisees. He says, but that you may know, and then he says this, that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Interesting language. That's the first time that Luke uses the phrase, the son of man. And I think he uses it, I think I wrote down 24 times in the remainder of the book of Luke. Son of man. Now, what does that mean? I mean, Jesus was born of Mary, right? He was born of, a, he had one human parent at least. Joseph was not his human parent. It was, there was an immaculate conception. But you could say that he was the son of man. But that phrase, son of man, has much deeper biblical roots than just a phrase to mean he was born of, of a woman. It actually comes from Daniel chapter seven. And every person in that room, especially the religious leaders, would have known exactly what Jesus was saying when he used the reference of the, of the son of man. It goes back to Daniel chapter seven. In the Old Testament, about 500 years before Christ lived, the prophet Daniel, who was in Babylon, he was taken away from Israel. He's being housed in, in Babylon. We just studied Daniel last year. He has a vision of four world empires that would arise in his future. Daniel's standing there at the king, at the king's feet, and he has a vision of four world empires that would come. First one was the Babylonian Empire. And then he has a vision, another vision, of the Medio Persian Empire. These are actual historical, um, historical kingdoms that came and went, but they were in Daniel's future. And then he foresaw the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great. And then he foresaw the Roman Empire. And then in the midst of the Roman Empire, a fifth empire was going to emerge, according to Daniel, 500 years before Christ. And listen to what it says in Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The son of man. Now the, the phrase son of man comes up again in Daniel to refer to that same person. It comes up a few times. By the time we get to Jesus' day, every person who was Jewish in Jesus' day knew that they were awaiting the son of man. They, they were looking for the one who would fulfill Daniel chapter seven. And then Jesus comes onto the scene and he begins to perform miracles. And then this paralytic is lowered before them. All eyes are on him. What's he gonna do? And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees say, no one can forgive sins but God. That's blasphemy. And Jesus turns to them and says, 
I'm the son of man. And in that moment, the religious leaders are beginning to put this puzzle together. The son of man, able to forgive sins, and then what does Jesus do? He validates it by healing the paralytic. Here's the proof, religious leaders, that I am the son of man from Daniel chapter seven. I say to you, rise, get up, and walk. And a paralytic walked. Now, what's the significance of this? The significance is not just that Jesus took the title the son of man. The significance is all that Daniel said the son of man would do. Let's read it again. I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, Daniel chapter seven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days, that's to the father, was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. What was the great commission that Jesus gave to all of the church that I say to us every single Sunday at the end of service? All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, says Jesus. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, all peoples, every tongue, tribe, nation, language is going to come to worship Jesus. Why? Because he's the son of man. And he has been given a dominion right now as we speak. That fifth and final kingdom is ruling, is, is reigning right now. Jesus is on his throne ruling over a kingdom. For 2,000 years since the death and resurrection of Jesus, the kingdom of Christ has been expanding. It started in Jerusalem, just like Jesus said it would. And then it went out to Judea. And then to Samaria, this is Acts chapter one, verse eight, and then to the ends of the world. And we watched in the book of Acts as it spread throughout the Mediterranean. Where did the gospel go after those first few hundred years? Well, it spread throughout the entire Middle East. It went down into northern Africa. Then it spread throughout all of Europe. After it spread through Europe, Europe, it crossed over the ocean. The kingdom of God, this is actual history, then spread throughout North America and South America. That's the nation that we're living in right now. America was birthed on Christian principles as the gospel was coming into a new land and they were seeing the light go to an entire new continent. Now where is it going? The gospel now is flourishing where? In America as we speak right now, secularism is on the rise. Christianity is in a way shrinking a little bit right now. That won't be the end of the story. It will rise again. But the gospel's not dead. All through South America, the gospel's flourishing right now. Through the Middle East, there are, there, there are thousands upon 10,000s of new disciples being made in Iraq as we speak right now. The gospel is flourishing in the underground church in China. In fact, China is set, to set, is set to send out more missionaries to the world than America in the coming years because there's so many disciples being made in the midst of persecution. The gospel is flourishing around the world right now. Why? Because the Son of Man is on his throne. And he has been given a dominion and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him and, have, and, and he will have an everlasting dominion. I love when you think about Jesus' kingdom. How does it expand? What's the, first, what's the first thing Jesus does when he establishes that he is the Son of Man and his kingdom is beginning? He heals a paralytic. Paralytics in those days, you know, it's very similar to today. Uh, but in fact, there was even more cultural, contextual baggage to it. 
They were oftentimes seen very much as outlaw, not outlaws, as uh, outliers to society. They were seen as weak. Oftentimes their, their paralysis was directly assigned and associated to sin, and so they were kind of seen as dirty. The, they didn't have all the opportunities, the, the, the kind of laws we have to have access to buildings. They, there were many places they just couldn't go. There were things they couldn't do. They were stuck. They were outsiders. Jesus, he establishes his kingdom, and he heals a paralytic. See, the, the kingdom of God does not, does not go forward in power and dominion and force the same way that every other kingdom goes forward in power and dominion and force. You know who knew this best? Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon Bonaparte, one of, the, one of the great rulers, great in the sense of like he, he dominated much of the world at the time. Napoleon Bonaparte quotes Jesus. He says this, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him. This is the kingdom that Christ has established. It's established on Jesus and the love he has for the least of these. Why is the church obsessed with caring for orphans and children in need? Why is it that many of you will sign up to give up your Saturday so that you can be a safe home for children who need a place to stay? Why is that? It's because the Holy Spirit is leading his church to be the fulfillment of the son of man's kingdom by caring for the least of these and that's how the gospel is gonna go forward to the nations. That's how the, that's how the kingdom works. It's built on love. Now what does this mean? What are some, what are some takeaways we can get from this? Da- Jesus is the, the son of man from Daniel chapter seven. Well first of all, no matter what happens in your life, Christ is on his throne. Now that sounds trite in the moment but, but think of this for just a moment. The Son of Man has come and established his throne, and he's ruling and reigning right now. And if you're in Christ, you're in him. You're protected by him. You're guarded by him. You're security. You're secure in him. No matter what happens in your life, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how bad it gets, this you know. This world might shake you up, but the king is not shaken, and he's holding you. The Son of Man is ruling right now, and if you're in Christ, he's got you. But secondly, It makes us ask this question of us as a church. Are we a worthy outpost of the kingdom? That's what a church is. We're an outpost. We're an embassy of the kingdom of God. And it makes me ask this question. When I look at the life of Jesus and I see what he did loving the least of these, are we a worthy embassy as a church of that kingdom? If that kingdom is that beautiful, if it's everything that Luke told us it is, if, if Jesus wants to equip us to be his hands and feet and to love the way he did, to be clear the way he was, to get people to his throne, are we a worthy embassy? Do we look like this? Now before you answer that collectively for the church, the church is made up of individuals. The way the church goes is not the way just the leadership of the church says, here's where we're gonna put our efforts. It's you, you're the church. Christian, are you a worthy ambassador of the kingdom? Are you living this? Are you loving the least of these? That's where the power of the kingdom is in the name of Jesus Christ as you're the hands and feet to the least of these. May it be so. Number three, who is Jesus? He is the great dividing line. He is the great dividing line. 
Isn't this interesting? This chapter happens. This, this amazing moment is taking place. Jesus forgives a man's sin, and there's two radically different receipts of that moment. There's the religious leaders of the day who are accusing Jesus of blasphemy and within a short period of time will crucify, will have Jesus crucified. Then there's another group that by the end of this moment, it says, amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we've seen extraordinary things today. Two radically different interpretations of what happened in that room. Jesus was a dividing line in this day. No wonder he's a dividing line today. He is the dividing line. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 36. Very important words for us. We need to remember this. Jesus says, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Harsh words. What's Jesus saying? He's not saying he's come to bring a sword of force. Obviously not. He clarifies specifically what he says right there, that it's a sort of division between even those who love each other. Now, what does that mean? Some of you in this room, and I started this entire sermon by saying this, you have been divided from your loved ones. You've lost friends over this. Some of you I know because I've met with you recently to talk about this and to, to bring counsel to you that you're, at, you're, you're struggling deeply right now because those that you love and want to have deep relationship with you are cutting themselves off from you because of your love of Christ. And I want to give you good news today. I want to comfort your soul today. If that is a part of your story, I want you to know that Jesus said that would happen. The cost of following Jesus is that you give your whole life to following him. He is a dividing line, but he's worthy of it all. And I'd rather follow Jesus than try to appease everyone else in my life, even those who, love, who I love. Now, what does this not mean? Are we to be like a bull in a china shop and just destroy relationships? No, absolutely not. This is not permission to just radically, radically break every friendship you have by being a bull in a china shop. No. We are to be tender towards those who are far from Christ. We are to be wise. We are to be like sons of Issachar who have understanding of the times, who know what Israel ought to do. We ought to be clear. But you know what? You can't control how everyone's gonna respond to your life. And, there, and the question I have to ask for us is, Jesus is a dividing line. When Jesus gets a hold of your life, you're like the people in verse 26 amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying we've seen extraordinary things today. That's what happens. If you, if you turn to Christ and he forgives you of your sin, there's this overwhelming, I'm new. I, 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 know, I know you don't like this part about me, but I can't hide it for that long. It's gonna come out of me. I, I'll do my best to be respectful, but honestly, you're asking me to hide who I am. It, it, would, be, it would be like me I'd feel naked walking into a room if I, if I didn't at least tell you about the good things Jesus is doing in my life. That, that is what happens to a Christian when they've been truly changed by him. So many Christians try to live a double life. They, truly, in their heart, they feel like Jesus is the greatest thing in their life, but then nobody knows they're a Christian. They go to their workplace, no one knows they're a Christian. They, they go to their family for Thanksgiving, no one knows they're a Christian. They go to their friends. No one knows they're a Christian. Nobody knows you're a Christian. Amazement seized them all. They glorified God, were filled with awe, saying, we've seen extraordinary things today. 
What was their walk home like? What was their walk home like? You think they were telling everybody about it? What was the paralytic's walk home like? <laughs> that was a pretty good walk. I bet, you, I bet you he was skipping. He was testing these muscles out. He was tripping, getting up. And did you see that trip? Did you see me get up? Christian, you were the paralytic. You've been healed. Your sin's been forgiven. His blood was shed for you. It's that good. He secured your eternity. You were dead. You weren't a paralytic. You were dead, and he made you a life. He made you a life. He gave you entire new life. You're going to keep it quiet? Jesus is the dividing line. Get used to it. He is the dividing line. Don't ruin every relationship just by being overly brash, but don't hide your faith. It's the best thing about you. Tell people. Talk normally about Christ. Let the Holy Spirit infuse your voice and your, your conversation. Let people just look in on your life and see, look, the reason I live this way is because of Christ. He's changed me. He's a dividing line. Number four, Jesus is the true physician of your soul. This story is a story of a healing of a paralytic. But notice there's two healings that take place. And isn't it interesting which one comes first? The guy walks away having never walked, or at least not walked in a long time, walking. Healing number one. But that happens second. First, Jesus looks at him and he heals his soul. Move one of Jesus, heal the soul. Move two of Jesus, heal the physical things in their life. Most of us are asking for physical things in our life without realizing Jesus is in the business of first healing the soul. Okay? Now, let's work that out a little bit. Imagine this young man, this paralytic. His friends are carrying him. He's on the stretcher. We thought about this from the, the friend's perspective. But now think about this young guy. He's on the stretcher. He's, you know... This man did not want to be in the middle of a crowd. That was not his favorite place to be in the middle of a crowd, okay? But there he is. There's no room at the door. They're, they're hobbling him up a roof. I imagine this young guy being like, guys, it's okay. <laughs> like, this is too much. But the buddies are like, no, no. They start tearing up the clay tiles of someone's roof they don't know, and the paralytic's like, guys, I can't go anywhere. This is too much, Okay, they start lowering him down. All eyes are on him. I just imagine he's like this. He gets before Jesus. But then he looks Jesus in the eye. And he sees that man. And then he's not looking at anyone else. And he sees Jesus. And then Jesus looks him in the eye and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And imagine him thinking this for a moment. Well, that's good. But that's not why my friends came. <laughs> what I really need, Jesus, I'm looking for these to, <laughs> these to work again. Because now they got to carry me on the stretcher the same way I came in. That's a little embarrassing. I imagine there was a moment where he just looked at Jesus and was just confused. What I really want is my legs. And I imagine Jesus almost communicating with him with silent words. I know you think the most important thing you need in your life right now is those legs to work. But I'm telling you, there's a deeper need you have. And I'm gonna fix that first. And he forgives his sin. 
The Christian life is one of increasingly learning this principle. Many of the prayers we pray are for very specific things that we want to see done in our life. Lord, please bring so-and-so to faith in Jesus. Should you be praying that prayer? Yes. Never stop praying that prayer. Lord, if only my children would obey me, I pray that prayer. Lord, if I could just be married... Lord, if I just looked like that person. Lord, if my parents treated me different. Lord, if, if I was smarter, if I could just have a mind that worked like that person. Lord, if I had a bit more money, then I could solve this problem. Lord, if I could just land that job. Right? This is what most of our prayer looks like. And, and here's the thing. Jesus is very concerned about those things. He, he loves what's on your heart. In our family, I asked my wife if I could share this. I don't share many stories in my family, uh, but I'm gonna share this one, brief one. When we adopted our daughters, uh, one of our daughters has had some emotional, just some extra emotional challenges she's had over the years, some heavy things, as we've just dealt with having an adopted child and raising, a, raising that daughter in our home. And we love her dearly, of course. But she's had some extra challenges those of you who know us very well know some of those challenges. And, uh, and you know, she, we've seen extraordinary growth in her over the years, particularly in the last year, just some extraordinary growth. And what, the way she, she's doing now compared to where she was, just God has done just a miracle. But uh, just recently, actually, there, there was a bit of backsliding. She went back to some old habits and some old ways. And I came home, and my wife, again, I asked my wife if I could share this, but my wife was really just beside herself with, with just some fear. Just the fear of the what if. What if she goes back to how it was? What if the progress she's made isn't actually progress? What if it's always gonna be like this and we're never actually gonna get over to where we thought we were going with this situation? And for a whole night, it was just difficult. Just worrying, and I could see the worry in my wife's, wife's eyes. And I, I can't remember the exact conversation, Sarah, but it, the next morning, my wife spent some time in the Word. We woke up early. We were spending time in the Word, and she was praying. And she shared with me something along the lines of, you know, God, God's got deeper work to do in me that my heart would immediately go to the fears about what it's all going to be like if we go back. There's deeper work in my own life that Jesus still needs to do if my immediate reaction to a moment of backsliding is to be consumed with fear. See, this is what Jesus wants to do. He wants to bring you to that realization. What are you going through in your life? You, 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 we've all got the physical. I've got my story, you've got your story. And, and, and they're difficult. The things you're going through, the things I'm going through, this is not easy. And the easy thing to do is to say, God, please answer this prayer. Yes and amen, pray that. But know this, Jesus very often is looking down at you saying, I know you think that's what you want right now. I know that's what you think, and I love, would love to give that to you. But I'm actually working something in your soul right now. And Christian, Christian, that means you need to be asking this, what are you working in my soul right now? That's actually an even... I don't want to say it's a more important prayer, but that prayer has got to be right alongside the other one. This, Jesus, here's my circumstance. This is what I feel like. This is my prayer, but what are you forming in me? Don't let me miss that. 
Because if we go through a trial and we miss what Jesus had planned to form in us, then we wasted the trial. We completely wasted it. And a Christian has to be dead set. I'm never gonna waste a trial. I'm not gonna let it happen. I'm not gonna go through all this hardship, get to the other side and forget everything Jesus taught me about trials, that he is going to refine me as gold is refined through the fire. Didn't he say that? James chapter, or that's first Peter. Then James says, consider it pure joy when you experience trials of various kinds. Why? For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You think Jesus doesn't know about what you're going through? He's sovereign over it all. Now we have two options. We can hold a grudge against Jesus. Why would you let this all come on top of me? Or we can say this. I know how good you are. And I don't understand why you've let all this come over me. But Lord, form steadfastness of faith in me in the midst of this. Form something new in me. I want a taste of heaven in the midst of my trial. See, Jesus is always after the deeper work. He's a physician of your soul. Number five, who is this Jesus? He's the glorious one. He's the glorious one. Amazement sees them all. They glorify God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Who is this man? Well, let me tell you. Jesus is the Christ. He's the chosen one of Israel. He's a light to the nations. He's the visible image of the invisible God, and by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell on him. Before Abraham was, he was. He walked with Adam in the garden. He spoke with Abraham on the hill. He wrestled with Jacob in the field. He was the fourth man in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Isaiah stood in his throne room. Ezekiel stood in that exact same throne room. The angels adore him, the demons tremble before him, and the nations will bow before him. He is the spoken word of God that became the living word of God. He is the Alpha and he is the Omega. He is the Lion of Judah and he is the Lamb that was slain. He is King and Servant. He was crucified and resurrected. He is humble and yet he is glorious. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. He knows the hairs on your head and he knows the thoughts in your mind and he knows the number of your days. At his command, legions of angel armies are sent forth. He's Daniel's son of man who rules and reigns over a kingdom that will extend throughout all eternity and he's reigning right now. Justice and righteousness are the foundation of his throne and one day he will return with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will be raised first and then all who are in him will receive mercy everlasting, will receive crowns of glory that will lay at the feet of Jesus as we join with the angels from all the beginning of creation in worship of the one true and living king as we enjoy heaven forever. That's who he is. Will you pray with me? Oh God, we love you. Lord, we praise you. Lord, you are good and you're so good to us, better than we deserve. You've forgiven all of our sin, all of our debt, and we want nothing more than to worship our king. 
Help us, Jesus, to have a right picture of you in our mind. Help us to worship you for who you are and to not get caught up in every doubt we've ever experienced or every skeptical claim. Let us just have a childlike faith of Christ, our King. We love you. Amen.